have entrusted us with prayer. And I pray, Lord, that we would grasp the responsibility that we would understand as these prayer requests come across the prayer chain, the importance of taking time out and to lifting them up in prayer. And so, Father, we just thank you and praise you for your goodness. We lift up our study tonight that you would once again speak to us and guide us in and through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to be starting in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, and then we'll take our study through to chapter 12. At the start of chapter 11, this was a few weeks ago, we saw Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's coming to Jerusalem for the purpose for his crucifixion, although it's about a week before. It's the Sunday before the Friday that he is to be crucified upon. We saw the significance in relationship to the Passover meal because the Passover was instituted always pointing towards Jesus Christ. And so Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world on that triumphal entry, was entering in with all these sacrificial sheep, all of these sheep who were as white as white can be, as perfect as perfect can be, the perfect sheep for the Passover, then in the midst of them you had the ultimate God's Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Now, this was to happen four days before the crucifixion or the Passover because the idea was is that the family would pick its sheep and they would bond with that sheep. It was God's intent that they would build an emotional attachment to that little sheep and they would also examine that sheep and see that this sheep is truly perfect. There's no fault in this sheep, but it's because of the, the, the Jewish, the head of the household, it's because of our faults. It's because of our sinful nature that, well, there has to be a letting of blood and this sheep is going to be slaughtered because of that. Well, we see the ultimate again in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Lord having entered into town and the people having received the Lamb of God, it's time now for four days of examination. So in our section of Scripture that God has given us here today, that we've arrived here today, instead of four days, we're going to look at four ways in which the Lord was examined. The four ways are a series of questions where a blemish was looked for, but obviously with the Lord, none was found. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned, all are blemished, but fall short of the glory of God. But in Jesus Christ, but in our Lord, there was not one blemish that was to be found. And so, again, in chapter 11, the last part, in chapter 12, that's what the religious community is looking for. They're looking for some way of discrediting the Lord. You need to see the reality of the spiritual attack here. Now, if the devil, working through this religious community, is able to discredit the Lord, what does it do? It discredits his crucifixion. It discredits his resurrection. It brings all of that into question. Because if Jesus had sinned, then he was just simply paying the price for his sin. But it's because he had not sinned that he is able to pay the price for all of the sins of the world. And so, since we are all blemished, we are all disqualified from the cross of Christ But here, Jesus Christ prevails in the midst of opposition that we would know that truly he was the Lamb of God who was without blemish, not paying the price for his own sins, but I can have full confidence that he was paying the price for my sins. In the Bible college class, we're in Genesis. We were looking at Genesis chapter 15. And we see the portion of Scripture where God spoke to Abram and Abram believed and it was accounted for him to righteousness. These things, as we are examining them in the Gospel of Mark, we need to understand that these are important aspects of our faith. And as they are important aspects, details of our faith, these things are things that, although they were unbelieving, we need to be believing, because believing is the way that we receive of the Lord, receive of His Word, and receive of all that He has had for us, and receive even ultimately of our salvation. Those who were unwilling to receive were those who went away empty. So in chapter 11, verse 27, through chapter 12, verse 12, Jesus' authority is questioned. In verses 13 through 17, now the rest will be in chapter 12, Jesus' integrity is questioned. Verses 18 through 27, Jesus' theology is questioned. 
verse 28 through 34, Jesus' priority is questioned. And then in verses 35 through 44, Jesus leaves no question unanswered. So really what is happening here, again, just think what has happened. The most important event in all of the history of mankind is about to happen. The death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so man is standing at the threshold of God's revealed grace to all of humanity. They're staring the revealed love of God in the eyes, Jesus Christ. And they arrogantly question the validity of who he is. And what we need to see in that is how hard-hearted mankind can be. But don't point fingers at the scribes and Pharisees and the religious community and the leaders and all of those who are gathered before him because we were all like that at some point. We were all just as hard-hearted, questioning the Lord, looking at this perfect Lamb of God that stood before us but not receptive of who he is. Before we start, just a short reminder in the book of Hebrews. I'll just go ahead and read it in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. It says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling of unclean uh, sacrifices for the purifying of the flesh, how much more so shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. And so again, God is unlocking the gates of heaven to all of humanity by this event, this cross, the cross that is about to happen. And so again, the devil, the devil is seeking to discredit it through this religious community as he does even today with man's organized religion that looks Christ in the eye and questions the reality of who he is. And so again, the first question, Jesus' authority is brought into scrutinization, verses 27 through 28. Then they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do these things? It's not a problem that they questioned the Lord. The problem is with their motives and their intent. Their intent is one of two. If they can get him to admit that he speaks of his own authority, then he's just another madman. Now, again, the scriptures were pointing to the coming of Messiah during this time, and there were many who presented themselves as Messiah. And obviously, if you're presenting yourself as being the Messiah and you're not, it's not too hard to discredit. And so if they can get him to admit that he speaks just simply on his own authority, well, he's just another one of those people who falsely represented themselves. If they can get him to say that he speaks of God's authority, then they can accuse him of being a blasphemer, but either way, they're able to achieve their purpose. The things that they speak of, and they said to him, of what authority are you doing these things? The things would be the triumphal entry. What gives you the authority? What gives you the right to receive praise from these people? Hosanna, Hosanna to the highest. Going into the temple and cleansing the temple and speaking of it even as your father's house. What gives you the authority to go in and to cleanse the temple? They wouldn't use it in those terms. And because he did so, he stopped the sacrifice. What gives you the authority to stop the sacrifice? What gives you or who gives you the authority to even teach in the temple? Well, Jesus gives his answer in verses 29 through 33. <clears throat> And really this answer goes to the depth of who they are. It seems like he's kind of just blowing them off, but in actuality, he's going pretty deep. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one question, and then answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned amongst themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Then why did you not believe him? 
But if we say from men, they feared the people, for all counted John to be a prophet indeed. So they answered and said to Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I will do these things. And so again, Jesus seemed to have such a good opportunity here. Why was he vague and elusive in his answer? Well, he wasn't really being, he was actually being very direct. John the Baptist, he's recognized as a prophet. The people understand this, and you were even convicted because you went out there to see what was going on. And, and we know and we understand, but they also knew and they understand that what was John preaching? He was preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Matter of fact, John even boldly called them a brood of vipers and that they should have, if he was from God, they should have submitted themselves to John the Baptist, but instead they chose to ignore him. Well, there is a spiritual concept here. John the Baptist's ministry is used because it represents the elementary things of our faith. Again, repentance for the forgiveness of sins, but also the keys of understanding. Here, they're wanting to know who Jesus is. They think they understand who God is and who the Father is. And really what they represent are those who are truly ignorant, standing before the Lord Jesus Christ in their own ignorance, trying to discredit him. This time of the year, our Christmas season, it happens during Easter as well, you'll see the exposés, you'll see the documentaries on ABC, CNN, Fox, the History Channel, whatever it might be, telling you who Jesus Christ was, who that baby was, who, was, who it was who died upon the cross, and so on and so forth. But really, they're speaking from their ignorance. And they're examining Christ from the standpoint of their ignorance, of their not understanding. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, for these things are foolishness to the natural man. He can't understand these things. The only reason that you're really able to understand the Scriptures is because of the Holy Spirit. I can look back in my life before I was saved, the few times that I picked up a Bible or the times, and I did every week going to church, but I never really had any understanding. I didn't even really care to have all that much understanding. But it's when God arrests our hearts and then we have the Spirit dwelling inside of us that God gives us a desire and a passion for His Word to seek God's Word according to the truth that it is based upon its own merit and not myself reading into it. And so these who were confronting Christ were doing so with an impure purpose, trying to discredit the Lord Jesus Christ, and in that they would have discredited the cross and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is the Lord's authority as far as what we know, as far as what the Scriptures tell us? Well, my mother had gone and taken all of the super eight, I was going to say video, the Super 8 movies that my parents had made throughout the 60s and whatnot, and she had it put on a CD, a DVD, and gave it to all of us, and so we were watching these times, and a lot of them were, seemed like the camera usually just came out on Easter Sunday, and so my dad would stage, he would go outside, and he would yell, you couldn't hear any sound, but I remember he would yell for us to come out, and we'd all come out in order, my sister all the way through to me, and then my mom would come out, and we'd be dressed in our Easter finest, and all of these things, and then we would go to my grandpa's, and there was about four or five different years that we did this, and they were all pretty much the same thing, and then we were at my grandpa's house, and it just reminded me of my grandfather's house, and I just remember when we were at my grandfather's house, my grandfather was the authority it was his house when we were at my father's house after my wife and we got myself got married we went to my dad's house my dad was the authority it was his house my house I'm the authority at my house last night we were at Kelly and Drew's my daughter Kelly and her husband Andrew's house and he's the authority in that house they give me the respect as as the father and all of that but nonetheless I don't get involved in the decisions that they make with their house or with their family Well, the Lord, as the Lord was here, he was the authority. And we understand the reason that he is the authority because he created all that we see. We're told this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, All things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things consist, or the idea is all things are held together. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have preeminence. Man arrogantly stands before the Lord Jesus Christ in his own house, if you will, not the church so much, but just even in this world, and questions who he is. And so Jesus, Jesus gave him no further, gave them no further answer, but he did give them a response in the form of this parable as we enter into chapter 12, chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. Then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a place for the wine vat and built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. So he's speaking of this man who had this land and planted this vineyard and did everything that is necessary to maintain a vineyard and to transform the, the grapes into the juice that would produce the wine. It says, as he leased it to these vine dressers, these people who would do the actual work, verse 2, now at vintage time, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers, that he would receive that which was due to him. And the idea is that God the Father is this one who's planted the vineyard around it, and these vine dressers are this religious Jewish religious community. In this particular case, those whom he had sent would be the prophets. It says in verse 3, And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent them another servant, and at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again, he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved, he also sent him to them saying, uh, them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vineyards said amongst themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. Well, again, remember when Jesus went in to cleanse the temple? They were fleecing the flock. The people were commanded to make the sacrifices, and what were they doing? They were selling the sacrifices to the people, rendering theirs ineffective as far as what the people brought, telling them they need to have these ones that were approved by the priest, and even the money that they would use to buy the sacrifice, the money that they had was not of any use. They would have to buy the temple coinage to buy the sacrifice, so they were making money hands over fist. And so when the son come, and that's what they're doing with Jesus even here, so they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Have you not even read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And so... The Lord is touching them exactly where they are. It's, it's not about his authority and their questioning. It's all about their heart. And that's what the Lord is doing. He's getting to the heart of the problem. And, and in actuality, every time we open God's word, whether we're sitting and doing personal devotions or we're gathering here together at the church, what, it's God, God, God's cracking open your heart. When I say heart, the inner person of who you are. And he touches deep because... I can remember questioning Jesus Christ. I remember, and it had to be either weeks or months before my salvation, I remember I was in the shower just thinking about these things, I don't even know why, and thinking, why do I even need Jesus Christ? I I know who God is, and I pretty much did pray every day of my life, mostly because a nun told me if I said a certain prayer every day of my life, I would get into heaven. And so I was trying to pray my way into heaven, which wasn't going to work. But... When I questioned Christ, it was then that Christ truly revealed himself to me and the Holy Spirit enlightened me so that this truth would be present to me for the purpose of my consideration. Well, it's the same thing here, but it says in verse 12, and they sought to lay hands on him. And so instead of repenting, they were afraid of the people and just simply says, so they left him and went away. They went away empty. And so... This brings us to the second question. Second question is questioning Jesus' integrity, verses 13 through 17. 
Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Once again, they're trying to trap him. Then they had come. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for no one for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it, and he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. So Israel at this point is under Roman occupation, and this was a huge thing in their minds. They obviously were bitter that Rome was able to come in and to take them captive, and captives they were. And what Rome would do is what every other conquering nation would do. As they came in and conquered, they would put them under tribute. Not so much national tribute, but they would have to pay individual taxes. Now, a lot of these nations were better off under Roman domination, but again, the Jews in their mind were gods. We're God's people, and should God's people, and this was a great debate of the time, should we be under the, domi- the dominating hand of Rome? And so there was question, we be revolting. Should we be paying these taxes? And so here's once again a situation where they're coming up against God. They're coming up against God, and they think they have this situation that they're able to entrap them. So what we have here is, is first the political opposition to Christ represented in the Herodians. Herodians were the temple guard. They were the servants of Herod. They were more than likely Jews. Herod was an Edomite. Uh, They didn't necessarily have to be Jews, but more than likely they were, the majority of them were Jews. They were representatives of Herod, and again, they were contrary to Christ because what Herod would be concerned of is what we saw his father concerned of when Jesus was born. Here's this new man. The people are recognizing him as king. Herod would be concerned about his position. But we also have a joining together of these natural enemies, the Herodians, but we also have the spiritual opposition to Christ as we see in these Pharisees. So again, the Pharisees and the Herodians were mortal enemies against one another, but now they have this common threat. The Pharisees, their religious standing is being threatened by Christ. The Herodians, their political standing is being threatened by Christ. Because again, what were the Jews expecting? They were expecting Jesus to enter in, expel Rome, and to restore Israel back to the days of King David. So both of these parties were concerned about this. Now this question in the Lord's answer is not a pay-your-tax scripture. Although you need to pay your taxes, but that's not the point here. This is more of a point of where does a Christian's allegiance come in? That's kind of the question and what they're presenting to Christ. The Herodians wanting to keep peace with Rome would have Jesus arrested if he taught to not pay taxes. That would be rebellion to Caesar. The Pharisees would label Jesus as a heretic, somebody who supported Rome and was contrary to Israel and in fact contrary to the people if that's what his answer would have been. Again, verse 17, Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. There was a man, I won't even mention his name, but he was prominent in the Christian community and actually kind of a... He was a brilliant man in some respects. This was in the, I don't remember, between the year 2000 and 2010. And he was a creationist and he spoke a lot on creationism versus evolutionism and so on and so forth. But he had this particular, I I don't even remember, but he was in rebellion against the government. He believed that he should not have to pay taxes. And so he didn't pay taxes. And they pursued him, and he finally was arrested for not paying his taxes, and he went to jail. He went to prison for a period of time for not paying taxes. I don't know how he rectified this section of Scripture and others where the Lord tells us to pay taxes, but nonetheless, he paid the price. And the idea here is, in the Lord's point, as he asked to see a coin, this coin bears the image of Caesar. And the idea is, it's his coin. But you, but they back then and us today, you recognize this coin. 
you use this coin and you attach value to this coin. The dollars that I have in my wallet, I value those. I work for them. I use them to support myself and my family, my household and whatnot. I, I, I attach value to those and I enter in and I participate in society as we all are as Christians. And so if you participate in a society, you need to abide by the laws. And once again, as a church, we're a nonprofit organization. As a nonprofit organization, as the government has given us this status, it's conditional. And they have commanded that we not do certain things, that we not speak certain things. Now, when it comes to the scripture, the things of the Lord, then there's to be no hindrance on that. We'll give up our nonprofit status if that is necessary. But we have been told to not speak of things political and there's just this fine line that exists there but again if we are in agreement with them then we have a responsibility to follow through in those things and so the religious community back in the lord's day they were making a fortune in their money changing operation and so they were entering into the economy that rome had established even by manipulating the lord's worship system but the lord says on the other hand just as the coin bears the image of caesar and is caesar's you bear the image of god and you are god's so it is right to give your money to the government and taxes because again you enter into the economy that has been established but it is also right for you to give of your dedication and your heart and your soul to the lord and so he's telling them, and this is what we have to balance out in our society today, render to Caesar, render to the government, the things that are government. We have a responsibility to do that. But we also have a responsibility to render to the Lord the things that are the Lord's. The Lord obviously has the higher priority and he sets the standard. So when it comes to my taxes, I pay my taxes. But when it comes to the Lord... I give of my life to the Lord. And so the answer that the Lord gave, Jesus gave here, it goes very deep. And once again, it's that which is designed to truly touch their hearts because they're not giving of their lives or their hearts to the Lord. They're not wanting to give of their money to Caesar. They're very greedy. They're wanting to keep it all to themselves. Then we have our third question as Jesus' theology is questioned, verses 18 through 27. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up an offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying and left no offspring. The second took her and he died, nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken because you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses in the burning bush passage, that would be Exodus chapter 3, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living, you are therefore greatly mistaken. <clears throat> the idea is they are mistaken to their detriment. Now it's important to understand those who are questioning him here are the Sadducees. The Sadducees are the ones who had control of the monies of the temple. They took their beliefs from the first five books of the Bible and nowhere else. First five books of the Bible is called the Pentateuch. Now, since Moses did not teach, there's no direct teachings of the resurrection or life after death, they didn't believe that there was a resurrection from the dead. They didn't believe that there was life after death. So their intent is to give Jesus an unanswerable question, and they do so by bringing it to ridiculous proportions as far as this 
seven brothers who each of them have this wife. They're married to this wife, no offspring, and they keep dying. So they don't believe in life after death. They're saying, so okay, so when he gets to heaven, whose wife are they going to be? I mean, they all had her. Had her. They feel like they're arguing from their, stand, their strong point, the Pentateuch, and their knowledge of it. And so Jesus' answer is really twofold. Again, chapter 12, verse 24 here, Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Why are they mistaken? Because they do not know the Scriptures, nor do they understand the power of God. They think that they have searched the Pentateuch, again, the first five books of the Bible, and there's no resurrection, but that's not true. So first of all, as far as the marriage issue, since there will be no need of procreation in heaven, there will be no marital intimacy or the two becoming one, it says we'll be like the angels. Now how are we going to be like the angels? Well, we will have white robes, apparently. That's the righteousness of Christ. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you get a halo. Sorry about that, you're not going to get a halo. Nowhere does it say you're getting wings, so you're not getting wings. The Bible never says that anywhere. You're probably not going to get a harp, and so you're just going to have to deal with what God gives you. Like the angels, it means you're going to be equally spiritual in nature, equally deathless in that you will never die, equally glorified, you're going to have a glorified body that can be in the presence of God, equally eternal, you're going to live forever. And I put equally genderless, I don't know if that's going to be true. I think there's still going to be men and women. I'm going to be known in heaven as I am known here to a degree. And so I don't know if we're going to be genderless. It's just not going to really matter when we're in heaven. One of the kids at the Bible college asked me the question that I hear all the time. Are we going to know our loved ones in heaven? I think we are going to know each other in heaven, but that's not going to be the priority. The priority is going to be Jesus Christ. When we're in the presence of Christ, he's going to engulf the totality of who we are. And so Jesus is telling them that you're going to be like the angels again. You're going to be equally spiritual in nature, deathless. You're going to be, have this glorified body and eternal. But as far as the life after death issue, this is where they are mistaken. They thought they had this locked down. I'll give you a tip today. Don't argue theology with God. You're going to lose every single time. Look at the last part of verse 26 when he quotes from Exodus chapter 3. It says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He didn't say, now they were all dead at that time. He didn't say, I was the God of those people. He says, I am the God of those people. How could he be current, use a current form there? Is because those people, although they died, they still exist. Now this is how the Lord is interpreting the scriptures. Verse 27, he is not the God of the dead, the people who have died and no longer exist, but he is the God of the living, although they've died still alive and so he tells them you are therefore greatly mistaken so just as they were trying to trap Jesus in a theological question it's been turned back upon them and now we find out that they are theologically incorrect he is not the God of the dead but of the God of the living you are therefore greatly mistaken or greatly deceived and deceived would probably be a better translation of that word of those people who have been teaching you this theology you are greatly deceived and again that's why we teach verse by verse through the scriptures that we would have an understanding of God's plan as we see it come to fruition as we go through the whole Bible we can go all the way through to the book of Revelation and go back to Genesis and see how the standards were set and they were kept throughout the whole scripture remember in the book of job what happened in job in chapter one he lost everything he lost all of his riches he lost all of his property he lost his health he lost all of his children and the only thing he had was this woman who encouraged him to curse god and die but then he prevailed at the end and god blessed him and God gave him back twofold of everything that he lost. And if you do the math, you look at the beginning in chapter 1, and you see all the donkeys and all the possessions that he had, you see that he got double in the last chapter. But everything except for his children. The children, the number of children that he had at the beginning, 
is the same number that was replaced. Why didn't he get double the amount of children? Well, by getting seven more, he was getting double. Because the first, although they died, they still lived. They still existed. And so the donkeys and the possessions, once they died, they were gone. So to get double, he would have to get double the numbers that were there. But to get the equal amount of children, he in actuality was getting double the amount of children. Why? Because another picture, although die absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. Now, when we get into a study in Luke, we come to the understanding that they weren't in the presence of the Lord at that time. Because man, before the cross, when he would die, he would go to this holding place called paradise. It wasn't quite heaven. Apparently, it was a great place to be. But this is a place that man went to wait for Jesus Christ to pay the price for our sins so that the gates of heaven would be open and then they could go and inhabit heaven. But as far as mankind, to be absent from the body today is truly to be present with the Lord. Again, we saw this in the Mount of Transfiguration as well when Jesus said he was going to be crucified but brought back to life and we saw his glorified body. And then Peter, James, and John saw Moses and Elijah, these men who previously have died, at least Moses died previously, but still was in existence. This brings us to the fourth question, Jesus' priority, verses 28 through 34. Then one of the scribes came, and having heard them reasoning together, perceiving that he had answered them well, asked him, which is the first commandment of all? Now, more than likely, this guy is not coming for the purpose of catching Jesus in, you know, trying to trap him. He's seeing how well the Lord is answering these things. Now, the scribe's duty of the day was to whittle down the 613 commandments because they knew perfectly well that man can't keep 613 commandments. Remember, if we whittle them down to 10, none of us have been able to keep the 10 commandments. And so they were of the mindset, what's the most important commandment or commandments that man must keep? So I really believe that this scribe saw an opportunity Here's an opportunity to throw out some of these commandments and just find out which are the important ones. Verse 29, Jesus answered him, The first of all commandments is, this is the Shema that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your mind, and all of your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like it, This is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So the scribe said to him, Well said, teacher, you have spoken the truth, for there is one God, and there is no other but he. And to love him with all the heart, with all understanding, and all the soul, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far of God, but after that no one dared question him. Why was this man not far from the kingdom of God? It wasn't so much in his answer, but it was in the heart of his approach to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the one that truly sought the Lord to get this answer that he would have right standing with God. Back in verse 27, when we told of those who were coming to Christ, we saw the chief priests. The chief priests were the Sadducees. We saw the elders. These would be the Pharisees, the Essenes, and the Zealots of the day. The scribes were the lawyers, the ones whose job it was to study the Scriptures. Now again, it was every scribe's desire to whittle it down. But this man, in the process of doing this, has now come face to face with he who is able to give him eternal life. And so when Jesus is questioned, when he's being attacked, what does he do? And in these instances here, he goes to that which you got. He goes to the word of God. And that's all that God has ever commanded us to do. He has never called us to go out and to argue. He's just called us to go out to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And where is it that your hope lies? It lies in Jesus Christ through the Word of God. Christ set the example. And as we study it, 
as we read it, as we make the cent- this the center of who we are as a church and as individuals, we have everything that is necessary. Again, you know, just because I was there this morning, looking at this class of these young people, only one of them, even a couple of them are married, a couple of them just got engaged, one of them had a child, but everybody else is pretty much single and they're of that age. And I just see, you know, they're in just such a good place. Not that they're in my class, but they're in class. And, and they're being taught the Word of God. And that's what is necessary. And today we've gone off in all of these directions of entertainment and all of these bells and whistles that man cannot possibly sustain. There's going to be some kind of backlash at some point. It's always the revealed word of God that makes all of the difference in our lives. As long as we realize that, that when given the opportunity, just share the word. Just go to God's word because this is the power of God to achieve his purposes. These people who approach Christ, they had a lot of worldly wisdom. These were smart people. But Jesus just simply went to God's word and it confounded them. It's what we have that is able to keep us. It's what we have that is able to overcome those who try to overcome the Lord Jesus Christ or overcome our faith. What does it mean to be not far from the kingdom of God? Warren Wiersbe said it means he or she is facing truth honestly and is not interested in defending a party line or even personal prejudices. It means the person is testing his or her faith by that the word of by what the word of god says and is not what some religious group demands people close to the kingdom have the courage to stand up for what is true even if they lose some friends and make some new enemies this man was willing to step outside of those who were attacking christ and to submit himself to the answer of the lord jesus christ did he come into the kingdom of god We just don't know, but he was definitely on a good path. And then lastly, we'll just close. The Lord asks a couple of questions of his own. Verse 35, then Jesus answered and said while he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. And so this is something that they would not be able to describe because the son of David or the descendant of David should refer to David as being Lord. And what Jesus is doing, he's shining light on who he truly is. He's not there just to restore the kingdom of David. He's there to restore the kingdom of God. Something so much greater. Verse 38 Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best uh, places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sought opposite the treasury and saw how the people put money into the treasury, and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow, this one woman, is the one who got the attention of Jesus Christ. And you need to see the heart of this lady. The one poor widow came and threw in two mites, (coughs) which make a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said to them, And surely I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than uh, than all who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. And the idea is, is those other people, they were kind of tipping God, but this woman was giving of her all to Jesus Christ. And so examining Christ, who did the religious community believe that he was? Well, anything else but the Lamb of God who was able to take away the sins of the world. This woman, we're not told as far as her recognizing Christ or Messiah, but she had a heart to worship God. She also had a heart that trusted in the Lord. She was willing to put in everything that she had because she knows that God gives all that we need. And he did so, 
as we have Jesus Christ standing before man back then, but even through his words standing before us in this place today. They're looking at this man who they think is going to be a great political liberator when actually he was the ultimate and spiritual savior. Father, it's that which we celebrate this time of the year. It's your attention as it was directed towards mankind as you sent your son as mankind was in darkness during those days and darkness filled the world. And as it filled the world, there was this marvelous light that had entered in. And Lord, it's that which was to change the world throughout all of eternity. And Lord, as you were birthed into this world, you came and you gave us your word. And Lord, you gave us understanding of your word. And you continue to do so today. As you died on that cross, you were resurrected. But you sent the Holy Spirit who gives us understanding. And Lord, the world invites us to scrutinize it. And the word invites us to question it. And as we do with a pure heart, Father, it's then that you give us the answers and give us the reason and meaning of our lives. And so, Father, we just thank you, even the rain, as we hear it right now. I pray that those who are out here would travel home safely. Father, I pray for this weekend, and I pray for the women's lunch, and just pray, God, that you would bless it and that you would use it. And pray, Father, just through our humble offerings, that, God, you're just simply glorified. We just ask these things, Lord, to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? Well, we're finished with Thanksgiving. We're back to our schedule. And the bulletin this coming Sunday, our, our uh, Christmas season schedule is going to be there. Um, we are going to be having Thursday night, just as usual, all the way through um, the, uh, the Christmas season. Christmas, I believe, is on a Tuesday, from what I remember this year. Everybody's nodding yes. Okay, that's good. And so we're going to have our usual services on the 16th, we're going to be having an outreach kind of thing where kids are going to come up and they're going to be doing a play, extended worship, and I'll give an evangelical type of message. So keep in mind who it is that you would invite to church in order to hear the gospel. Again, it's Christmas. They're playing our song out there. I was in Home Depot getting ready for, well, building stuff for the woman's thing and hearing the Christmas carols as they were being played over the, uh, over the whole store. And so as they are playing our song, we have the one whom they are speaking of. And so let's see who we can get to church and hear the gospel and maybe even see them saved. Um, That would be on the 16th. On the 16th, on Sunday night service, we're more than likely going to have a movie night. Again, this will be in the bulletin. The next week is Christmas Day. Well, at least it's Christmas weekend. Sunday, we'll have a usual Sunday morning service. We will not have a Sunday night service, but we will have a Christmas Eve candlelight service. We've had that the last couple of years, and it just has been just been a kind of a, a special time. And then on Christmas Day, we'll have service at 9 o'clock in the morning. It'll be about an hour long just to once again set our hearts before the Lord and then to move on in what God has called us to do. And then on um, uh, New Year's, we'll have a prophecy update and possibly year in review on Sunday morning. So it would be the day before New Year's Eve. And then we'll have a regular evening service. And then you're free on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. God bless you guys. So speaking of Christmas and hearing our songs, um, let's go ahead and sing one right now. So just join us in singing Silent Night. Silent Night, Holy Night, all is Mom. 
Let's go out and share the truth about Christmas. God bless you guys.